This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. Uh, So this week we're talking about uh, the week of February 3 through 7. Uh, Jeopardy dates February 3 through 7. So let's go to Monday. Uh, We've got Travis Gaylord, a management consultant from Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Stephen Jackson, an emergency medicine physician from Atlanta, Georgia. And Michelle Paul a managing director from Newark, Delaware, whose two-day cash winnings total $30,122. And we start off with the Jeopardy round with the categories Writer's Toolbox, State of the Estate, Number Your Response, each response begins with a number, Potpourri with the P in quotation marks, Hmm. Heaven and Paradise, and African American Athletes. Yeah, I I just had to make a claim that Potpourri was gone, and now they're just throwing it in every game. Mm-hmm. I see how it is. Although this is, I mean, uh, this is not straight up Potpourri. This is P in quotation marks. Everything will start with the letter P. True. Um, True. Yeah. I feel like we had a lot of unplayed clues over the course of this week. Um, uh-huh. I'm not... I'm not sure what's up with that, if the contestants are just playing a little slower or sort of losing time to um, incorrect responses and triple stumpers, or if there might be like a slight variation in the amount of time they have available. Yeah. Seems like we saw relatively few cleared boards all week. Yeah, I had that same same impression. Mm-hmm. Took a while before Travis got in on a single clue in Single Jeopardy. Um, I'm looking at like the game dynamics graph and we see Michelle get off and running and then Steven gets off and running a couple clues later and sort of, and they're sort of neck and neck. And then around clue 10, Travis comes in really strong. And then the three of them are just about even through the rest of Single Jeopardy and into the beginning of Double. Yep. So we find the Daily Double at clue number 16. It's in the State of the Estate category. At the $600 level, Michelle finds it. And she wagers $1,800, which is not a true Daily Double. Uh, She's just about tied with Travis right then. And uh, Steven is a little behind, like Emily said. They're pretty much neck and neck. The clue is... The Pabst Mansion. Uh, Michelle, she she knows that she should know it, because she, she sighs and takes a guess. She says, what is Michigan? But the correct response is Wisconsin, home of the finest beer in the world. PBR. Just kidding. It's not the finest. <laughs> it, it holds a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> um. Yes. I I was bummed we didn't get to see the $200 clue in State of the Estate, which I am calling as North Carolina. I bet that that under that empty, unrevealed square is the Biltmore Estate. Mm -hmm. They continue along, and by the end of the Jeopardy round, 
We have the scores of Michelle at 1,600, Steven at 2,000, and Travis at 2,600. So not a big gap between them. And Michelle will pick first uh, from the categories The 30 Years War, TV News Shows, Science, Unfilmed Novels, Compound Words, and You Can't Take It With You. Alex Explains is a category about things that the TSA won't let you take on the plane or check in your luggage. Mm-hmm. Which I'm pretty sure have never had that category before. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting category. I probably should not devolve into a tangent here about the um, Malian uh, musician whose instrument was fully disassembled while checked. But have you seen that news story? I have seen that news story, and it yeah, makes me livid. It's yeah. so infuriating. I have I have seen a number of people be like, they would never do this to a white musician or with a traditional Western instrument, and like, I don't think that's correct. Like, like I feel like I have also encountered stories of them like breaking guitars. Yeah, it is it is known amongst musicians that if you have to travel with your instrument, you buy it a ticket, mm. and you get it its own seat. Yeah. You do, you do not check it. You do not put it in any, anyone else's hands. Like, yeah. And but that's not to that's not to like blame the musician. It's it's absurd that that has to be the reality. Right. You know? Yes. I mean, like I, maybe the straw that breaks the camel's back. The the thing that they put in the case, like the like the notice in Spanish to like pack well to like <laughs> like I don't know. This looks forward. Let's put the Spanish one in. Ugh. Yeah. All right, we get Daily Double number two as the third pick at the $1,600 level in science. Steven finds it and wagers 2000 He has 2800 at that point, so it's not quite a true Daily Double. Um, he's trailing Travis, who has $3,000. Um, Michelle is in third place at that point with 1600 He gets the clue. An atom or molecule that has an unpaired electron is called by this liberated name and can damage your cells. And he correctly responds, what is a free radical? Which I always thought was one of the more cool terms in chemistry. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds kind of political, right? Yeah. A free radical. Who knows what they could do? (laughs) I got the triple stumper in compound words at the $2,000 level. Getting to the core of things, the oldest and strongest part of a tree is the hard, dark center called this. That's heartwood. I also got that one. Nice. I learned that in Boy Scouts. I remember learning that lesson uh, because one of us, it wasn't me because I was always a goody-goody, but one of, one of the kids was like just, just kind of, you know, hacking away, stabbing away at a tree because we were young kids who now had knives and hatchets and whatever. Mm. He was just being a dumb kid, uh, and we got a, a stern talking to about trees and how they can die if you damage the heartwood, mm. and that always stuck with me. Yeah. I'm not sure where I picked it up. Maybe like a fantasy novel or something? Maybe. Wait, you mean you learned something from reading? <laughs> the thing about learning things from fantasy novels is that you have to be discerning about what actually is a real thing and what is a made-up thing because you're reading a fantasy novel. Exactly, especially when they're compound words, because, man, fantasy authors love making up compound oh, words. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, I'm not actually 100% sure it was from a fantasy novel, but I have I have just sort of a feeling that that's where I, that's where I first encountered that term. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the third Daily Double comes at pick number 23. 
Stephen also finds this one. It's in the 30 Years War category at the $2,000 level. Uh, he wagered 2000 so the value of the clue. He was in a good lead at this point. He had 15600 Travis was at 11000 and Michelle was way back at $3,600. Uh, so he had some wiggle room, but he, he wagered enough to maintain a lead, even if he got it wrong. And the clue is... The 1648 peace deal had Spain recognized the independence of this North Sea nation, ending both the 30 and the 80 years' war. And Stephen guessed what is Iceland, but the correct response is the Netherlands. I don't know the 80 years' war, but I did know yeah. that, because um, the, the, the Spanish Empire, it was a fact I knew that they, they controlled the Netherlands until 1648. Mm-hmm. So Stephen drops down a bit there, but still holds a pretty good lead. Travis is uh, has managed to stay in a, in a pretty solid second. Um, Michelle looks like she couldn't get in on the buzzer through a lot of double jeopardy. She's been a pretty flat line through double with a with a few good gets. So we head into final jeopardy. We get the category. Asian geography. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Stephen is leading with 14,800. Travis has 11,000. Michelle has 4,400. And they get this clue. This 150 by 2.5 mile area created in 1953 is now home to more than 100 endangered and protected species. I'm pretty proud of myself for getting this one. Oh, nice. Yeah, so Michelle has wagered 3,300 and guesses what is the coral reef reserve. Uh, That's incorrect. Travis has wagered 3,801 and correctly responds, what is the DMZ? Uh, That is the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And uh, that wager takes him over where Stephen is. It takes him to 14,801. Um, Stephen is at 14,800 at this point before we reveal his wager and response. If Stephen has a zero wager or an incorrect response, then Travis is going to win. And um, yep. so Stephen has wagered 7,201. That's a cover bet. His response is, what is the Great Barrier Reef? So that's incorrect. And uh, so Travis is our winner with 14,801. Yep. And you said you got it. Nice job. Yes, thank you. What was the pointer for you on that? It seemed like, I think it's uh, the, the is now home um, suggested to me that some so, some change in 1953 actually impacted what wildlife was in the area. Right. And so I thought about, is there an area, um, a long, narrow area that I can think of that has been sort of emptied of like human interference and so the dmz came right to mind at that point nice yeah that was exactly my thinking too Mm -hmm. cool uh that brings us into tuesday uh and on tuesday we have uh nippon toshian an investment analyst from new york new york Catherine flute an accounting student from canton michigan and travis gaylord a management consultant from winwood pennsylvania whose one day cash winnings total fourteen thousand eight hundred and one And they get the categories Around Ohio, Where Does It Hurt, Give Us One Letter, Irritable Owl Syndrome, Monumental Television, 
and in the environment which has correct responses made up of letters that you find in the word environment mm-hmm. we had woodsy owl in our game right we did i think raymond got it yeah raymond raymond swept the whole psa mascots category in our game i mean he didn't yeah. he didn't actually run the category but he got most of those clues i can't remember what the clue was in our game but uh we see a return of woodsy owl and i had not learned anything it turns out because i missed it again oh yeah give a hoot, don't pollute yeah i say that to my kids like my children and also my students all the time <laughs> when, they, when they like leave trash on my floor because they do that yeah <laughs> and they just look at me like what does that even mean very dad joke. We get the daily double at the 13th pick at the $1,000 level in the where does it hurt category. And all of these clues have been single words, medical terms for for a type of pain, and you're supposed to identify where that pain would be. So Catherine finds the daily double. She wagers 1,000. Um, she has zero at that point. Nippon has 2,200. Travis has 1,600. She gets the clue myalgia, these parts, and can't come up with anything. Um, the correct response is muscles. Yeah, I don't. I didn't get that. Like I didn't. I didn't pull that. Uh, but when they said it, it makes sense. I mean, we see all the commercials for fibromyalgia. Yeah. I, I said nerves because... I also said I nerves. I thought that it was a... Because of, you know, the description of fibromyalgia, I thought it was a nerve issue. But it yeah. would apparently be nerves causing pain in muscles, so... Yeah, I had the same thought process and the same incorrect response. I suppose it's not fair to ask for a spoiler warning on the Harry Potter series, um, but I was glad my six-year-old wasn't in the room for the irritable owl syndrome category uh the 200 dollars clue like others this owl familiar of harry potter perished in deathly hallows and that's that's hedwig which i remember they they put deathly hollows not hallows yeah yes not that uh, that met not that that's a big deal but yeah yeah there's a there's a note on j archive to that effect i opted to pronounce it correctly even though there was a misspelling in the clue as we go into double jeopardy Nipun is leading with 2,600. Travis is in a pretty close second with 2,200. And Catherine isn't too far behind either with 1,600. We get the categories apostolic names, newer world heritage sites, hello, I also compose field music, admirable admirals, and TLDR, which is an internet abbreviation meaning too long, didn't read. We get the second Daily Double almost immediately. It's the third pick at the $1,200 level in Admirable Admirals. Nupun finds it and wagers 3000 of his 4200 At that point, Travis and Catherine have held steady at 2200 and 1600 respectively. He gets the clue on July 30, 1588. Admiral Howard left this city's harbor to meet the Armada. 32 years later, another ship set sail from there. And he guesses what is Southampton, but the correct response there is Plymouth. Yep. Yeah. He may have been thinking of the Mayflower. I feel like Southampton comes up somewhere in the sort of pilgrim 
narrative. Interesting. I, I'm realizing I don't remember anything about that. <laughs> like, Plymouth was the only name that came to mind, but I have forgotten a lot of that elementary school history <laughs> about, you know, the Pilgrim's journey and everything. Yeah. Huh. On August 5, 1620, the Pilgrims left Southampton to embark on their historic transatlantic voyage. Yeah, so I think I think Southampton was their final departure point. I trust that they fact-checked, but I'm not quite sure what's going on here. I'm going to have to research it further, so oops. It's possible, like, yeah, like you said, they maybe Southampton was the last stop before yeah. they went across, and Admiral Howard left from Plymouth, so, so that's how yeah, this that's, works. Yeah, that's pinned, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I got really excited about the I also compose film music category. Mm-hmm. I guess I should have expected it, given that the, the you know the category is I also compose film music. So really the suggestion is that these people are better known for other things. Mm-hmm. But my first thought was it's going to be a, you know, a film composer category, but it was not really. Like the $800 clue, Ludwig Göransson won Grammys for composing Black Panther and co-writing this 2018 Childish Gambino song, which is This Is America. Uh, even if you don't, you know, listen to like modern popular music, uh, you should know This Is America mm-hmm. uh, with Childish Gambino, which uh, you should also know that Childish Gambino is Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. That's his stage name. Those things come up a lot in trivia. Yes. And then we had a couple triple stumpers. Actually, we had three triple stumpers in that category. The three uh, top top dollar clues. And I'm not going to read all of them, but the $2,000 clue. In the 1930s, this Russian composed Peter and the Wolf and scored the movie Alexander Nevsky. Uh, and that's Prokofiev. So if you, if you ever get Peter and the Wolf and Russian composer, you should probably go with Prokofiev. Mm-hmm. Also... If you have a 1930s Russian composer of any kind, it's I pretty much either going to be Prokofiev or Shostakovich. I guess it could be Stravinsky, but um, they'd usually point to that. Yeah. Yeah. We get Daily Double 3 in the Apostolic Names category as the ninth pick. Catherine finds this one and wagers 2,000. That's a true Daily Double for her. Travis at that point has 4,200. Nipun has negative 800. He's dropped down by $2,000 since the previous Daily Double. She gets the clue. The Spanish Diego is the equivalent to this apostolic name. She freezes up, doesn't come up with any response. The correct response there is, what is James? I did not know that Diego was the equivalent of James. Yeah, James has some weird translations in other languages you know like john is pretty close you can see john in most other languages that it mm-hmm. translates to or or things like that you know but but we we say james you know spanish is diego and there's you know iago and you know these these translations that are like man how did we get from there to here <laughs> yeah yeah so not not too surprising that uh that somebody would struggle to to pull that all right, so we get to the end of the Double Jeopardy round. This is a low-scoring game. Uh, there are a number of incorrect responses, I think, higher than average. All of the Daily Doubles were incorrect responses. And uh, there are a number of triple stumpers. So we go into Final Jeopardy. 
Catherine is in third place at 2,400. Travis is in second at 5,000. And Nippon is in first place at 5,200. Uh, so it's a close game. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's anyone's game, but it's low scoring. And we get the category World Mammals. And the clue, a drawing of it by John Hunter, naturalist and governor of New South Wales, published in 1802, labels it Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. Catherine wagers everything but a dollar, and she guesses what is the kiwi, which I suppose if you know, if you kind of know the general area of New South Wales, it's not a terrible guess, though the kiwi is a bird, not a mammal. And so she loses all but a dollar. Travis uh, wagered 201, so he's following the same strategy as the day before to get a dollar over first place to guard against a zero bet and put the pressure on them to get it right. Uh, And he responds, what is a platypus, which is correct. And Nippon wagers 5,200, but he says, what is a kangaroo? So that is incorrect and loses 5,200 and drops down to zero in third place. So for the second day in a row, Travis comes out of second place going into Final Jeopardy and wins the game. Um, and we have sort of the weird situation here where um, if Catherine had gotten it right and both of the other two had missed, we would have gone to a tiebreaker. Um, Travis would have dropped down to forty-seven ninety-nine, and that's where Catherine would have landed if she'd gotten it correct. Oh, that'd have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. You ha- I think you have to sort of uh, key in on paradoxes in this clue and um, think about the uh, puzzling things about monotremes. You know, it's a mammal that lay eggs. It has a it has a duck bill and yeah, poison spurs, and I think it lactates through its skin. Like yeah, it does, it's it is an absurd animal. Yeah. Um, also, ornithorhynchus. You know, ornitho mm-hmm. meaning bird, rhynchus meaning nose. Oh yeah. Or rhynchus, I guess, if you want to pronounce it that way. Mm-hmm. So bird nose, a bird nose paradox. Yeah. <laughs> I like that name, too. (laughs) (laughs) So going into Wednesday, we get Justin Joseph, a voiceover artist from Los Angeles, California, Paige Hermanson, an English professor from Amherst, Massachusetts, and Travis Gaylord, a management consultant from Wynwood, Pennsylvania, returning with two-day cash winnings, totaling $20,002. And we get the Jeopardy! categories, world leaders, newspapers and magazines, State songs, nicknames, texting abbreviations, and movies across America. And Alex kind of rubs it in about the the previous day, talking about um, (laughs) yesterday was Travis won with a low, low score. (laughs) Yeah, he's been laying it on thick recently. He does not pull his punches now. Yep. So a little salt in the wound there. Although $5,000 for half an hour's work is not bad. Yeah. And and you get to spend it playing Jeopardy, and then you get to come back and play more Jeopardy. So, yeah. you know. You're guaranteed another $1,000 at least if you're only looking at the money. Mm-hmm. But when I only look at the money, it's the funnest thing in the world. I know. That texting abbreviation category, it made me uncomfortable. Not because I knew them all or because there was anything in them that was weird. It's just, I don't know, hearing... Alex give texting abbreviations and things like that. Always, it's always like, oh man, yeah. there's no way you know this firsthand. 
That's <laughs> true. Although, like, the $1,000 one, YBS, colon, I'm trying to warn you, um, the correct response was, you'll be sorry. And that was a mm-hmm. triple stumper. Um, and I'm not convinced that anybody uses that routinely and without explanation as a texting abbreviation. Maybe I'm just wrong. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I've never seen it either. But yeah. I'm also not a young person, I guess. Yeah, we're Jeopardy young. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're, we're not the uh, target demographic of the advertisements that are on during Jeopardy. So. <laughs> Texting abbreviations or a category about what your grandchildren are trying to say to you. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> we get the Daily Double as the 17th pick in the world leaders category at the $400 level. Travis finds it and wagers 1200 That's a true Daily Double. At that point, uh, Paige is leading with 2600 and Justin has $1,600. Um, so if Travis gets it correct, he'll move into a close second place. And the clue is, in 2003, it all came crashing down around him, including his statue on April 9th. And Travis correctly responds, who is Saddam Hussein? Yep. Now this, this clue was interesting, or this category was interesting, because they were all historical world leaders not current world leaders mm. and and yeah. oftentimes that kind of category like world leaders or politicians or whatever it's it's often contemporary yeah um but yeah this one was all all historical yes which was pretty fun mm-hmm. and apparently caligula means little boot mm-hmm. I, did, I did not know that yep I was surprised in the newspaper and magazines category at the $400 level. The clue is Marca, a Spanish sports daily, reports on this sport in particular. Paige rang in and guessed what is bullfighting, which I guess, you know, if it's Spain, that's a decent yeah. guess. But then it was a triple stumper. No one no one went for what I thought was pretty low-hanging fruit with soccer. Yeah. Is there daily news on bullfighting? I think of I, bullfighting as like something that would have events intermittently but i don't actually have any real knowledge um i i don't know if there would be you know there's a lot of controversy around bullfighting with you Mm -hmm. know like humane practices and things like that yeah i have been to a bullfight oh really yeah it it was entertaining It, it if you i i suppose if you grow up with it being normal then it doesn't bother you yeah but, like, a bullfight isn't just the matador goes out with the cape and, you know, waves it around and the bull charges at him and they dance around and all that. It's it's longer, there are more people involved, and it essentially is torturing the bull into becoming enraged until they kill it. Mm. So it, it it is kind of problematic. But I don't know that it's a daily thing. Like, I, I think it's usually reserved, like you said, for more intermittent events or, like, even just, like, once a week sort of things. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Travis in first place at 4,600, Paige in second place at 3,800, and Justin in third at 3,600. So again, uh, close scoring Jeopardy round. Mm-hmm. And we get the categories a colorful category, on the Mediterranean, show tune rhymes, the Ides of February with IDE in quotation marks, genetic disorders, and author's name changes. Mm-hmm. And the Daily Double comes up, Daily Double number two comes up pretty quickly. They play straight down the colorful category 
and find Daily Double number two at the bottom of it, at the $2,000 level. Justin uncovers it and wagers 3000 of his 5600 At that point, Travis has 6600 and Paige has 3800 Justin gets a, an image, it's a video Daily Double, and the clue, here's this mountain range mentioned in the opening of Take Me Home Country Roads. He guesses what are the Smoky Mountains. The correct response here is the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yes. And I, I guess you could make a case for Smoky being a color, like color related, but yeah. um, but it doesn't quite fit the category, I would argue. Yeah. But also, if you don't know that the Blue Ridges are a thing, then you're just kind of, yeah. you're taking a random shot at any color. Mm-hmm. We used to live in the Blue Ridge Mountains when I was a kid for oh, nice. a few years. Yeah. On the Virginia side, not the West Virginia side. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Yeah. They're not like the Rockies. Rockies are majestic and powerful. Yeah. And when I leave Colorado, I miss them. But the Blue Ridges are also very, very nice. Yeah. Anyway. I thought show tune rhymes ran a little easy, but it was a fun category. We had a a humorous incorrect response at the $400 level. Uh, The clue there was, in the Music Man, there were copper bottom, bottom timpani in horse platoons, double bell euphoniums, and big... These instruments, and Travis rings in and guesses what are spittoons. Yep, I I wonder if he rang in thinking it would come to him and then it didn't. Yeah. And so he just gave a rhyming answer. Uh-huh. Yes, that would make the song very different. Yeah, that's from seventy six trombones. Yeah. Yeah, I agree that like the the show tune rhymes like you don't have to know anything about the show or the song you just have to think of a word that rhymes with the clue they gave you so mm-hmm. i did i did feel that they were that they did run a bit easy we do find daily double number 3 at the bottom of that category at the $2000 level justin uncovers it and he wagers 3000 again uh so he's managed to make up the loss from the earlier one and get back to nearly a tie with Travis. So he wagers 3000 again. And the clue is in it's the hard knock life. Annie laments, no one cares for you a smidge when you're in this place. So I guess you do have to kind of know a little bit about Annie to know that she's an orphan. I feel like that's fairly common knowledge among people who, you know, like do trivia. Uh, But Justin guesses what is the fridge? (laughs) <laughs> which you know that's a very different musical it would be a very different musical um you also could know this um from the jay-z song right you could know this from yeah. the jay-z song yes mm-hmm. but the correct response is an orphanage yeah which rhymes with smidge mm-hmm. yeah so he loses three thousand again drops back down and doesn't really recover from that one yeah, Travis maintains um, a pretty solid lead throughout the rest of Double Jeopardy, although Paige makes a a pretty good recovery. She's an English professor and got the got the twelve hundred and sixteen hundred dollar clues in the author's name changes category. So I bet that was gratifying. Yeah, sure. And at the end of Double Jeopardy, we have. Travis leading with 11,000, Paige trailing with 8,600, and Justin in third place with 6,400. We get the category 
American history and the clue at Harper's Ferry, John Brown and his rebels were defeated by troops commanded by this man, who two years later led a rebel army himself. Justin wagers 6,399, so everything but a dollar. I would argue that is too high a wager for the situation. And guesses who is Hammett. He says he was going for Hamilton. That's incorrect, so he drops down. Page wagers 6,400. I'm not quite sure how she came up with that number. Um, Yeah, I, I don't either. A thing that can happen when you're doing your math is that you're you're throwing around a lot of four-digit numbers, through, and it's not uncommon to do a bunch of math and then accidentally grab something that was not your final result, but was one of the numbers that you were using as you were calculating. I've seen that happen a few times. Um, so in this case, she has wagered Justin's score, and I wonder yeah. if at some point she was doubling Justin's score to see where he could land and like accidentally took that as her wager. Her, her response is correct, though, who is Robert E. Lee. Um, and so with what was probably a too large wager, she does land in a fairly good position. Travis, though, also has who is Robert E. Lee, and he has a cover bet of 6,201. So Travis is our winner. Yeah. I, I thought it was deceptively easy. Mm, yeah. I, I was worried. Well, I was like, well, it's Lee, isn't it? And then I kept going like, that can't be that can't be that easy. It's got to be like Stonewall Jackson or P.T. Beauregard or something like that. Because mm-hmm. it, yeah. it can't possibly be Lee. I would have put Lee because it's like, well, <laughs> he led the army. I don't, know what, <laughs> I don't know what else it would be. Right, yes. So I guess you had to know that. You had to know the time period of John Brown and Harper's Ferry. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the only trick to this. Yeah, but I mean, we know it's American history from the clue. Mm-hmm. And the only rebel leader that we really talk about as far as a rebel army, is Robert E. Lee. Right. We don't refer to ourselves as a rebel army in the Revolutionary War. Right. And we, we don't not, really... We were not rebels. Right. And we don't really uh, we don't really talk about the people involved in, like, Shays' Rebellion or the Whiskey Revolt mm-hmm. or anything like that. You right. Know? Yes. So. so on Thursday, we get Teresa Burke, a retired IT specialist from Haledon, New Jersey. Patrick Rice, a business development strategist from San Francisco, California, and Travis Gaylord, a management consultant from Wynwood, Pennsylvania, who's up to three days, uh, winning a total of $37,203. And we get the categories putting a B in your bonnet, quote, or B in quotation marks, The Weight of the Worlds, 1980s Pop Lyrics, The New School, which is colleges and universities founded in the 20th century, hyphenated adjectives and first name i thought that was an interesting conceit because so often in jeopardy it is good strategy to respond with last name only and in this case they were giving you a the last name and what the person is known for and you were supposed to come up with their first name yeah that's fun that that, that might you know that might throw a player off yeah if you've practiced going for last names only. Mm-hmm. We find the Daily Double as the 13th pick in the new school category at the $600 level. Travis finds it and wagers 2000 uh, At that point, um, he's in a pretty solid lead. Uh, Teresa has 1000 and Patrick has 
600. Um, so even if he misses, he will still be in the lead. He gets the clue. Florida International U was planned in an old air control tower, now called this type of tower, a symbol of academic life. He sort of looked, he was like looking down and to the left and he was kind of working it out and you could see it come to him. It was so great. And he responds, what is an ivory tower? Uh, which is correct. I thought the weight of the world's category was fun. It was all about what proportion of your earth weight you would be on various planets and uh, in one case, a dwarf planet. Yep. So it was kind of a fine conceit, although they, they put some, some basic planet facts in each clue as well. Right. It's not just, here's the, <laughs> here's the ratio, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> on which planet are you 2.53 times as much as you weigh on earth? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we had clues like uh, at the $200 level on this least massive planet, you'd be 0.38 of your earth weight and very hot. Um, and that's Mercury, the smallest. And I think it may not be the hottest. I'm pretty sure Venus is the hottest. Yeah. Because the, like the, the, like the clouds trap heat. My children are the real experts on this. Um, <laughs> And then up at the $1,000 level, um, we had an object's weight on Venus is almost the same as it would be on the surface of this much larger planet discovered in 1781. Um, Teresa got that one. It was Uranus. Um, mm. It seemed like she had a little bit of a hard time on the buzzer, um, but, you know, good knowledge. She got a good number of those higher value clues. Yeah. And very poised. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Travis in the lead with 7,600, Patrick trailing with 6,000, and Teresa in third place with 1,800. We get the categories, It's Not You, It's Me, Best Director Twice, and Then There Were Nuns, <laughs> Foreign Language Mottos, Shapely Book Titles, and... Suriname, and this is they're they're making a joke here in the in the Jeopardy round. They had the first name category, and Suriname looks like surname. Mm -hmm. So, haha. Haha, -ha. we we get your joke, writers. <laughs> it's our it's our second is that our second day this week with Oval Office as a response? Uh, maybe there was the I can't remember if. No, maybe, I think the, the other day it was the movie category. Oh yeah, no, Oval Office was in the clue, but the correct response was Oliver Stone. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so, but we've got Oval Office coming up twice this week. I liked the and then there were nuns category, because of course I did. <laughs> we had Mother Teresa, the $400 level, um, a reference, uh, a clue about... Letters published after her 1997 death revealed her years of spiritual torment and belief that she was reliving Christ's passion. Mm. And I've heard that she wanted those to actually be destroyed after she died, although I'm, I'm not sure I have an authoritative source on that. Um, mm. I don't know. I think it's, it's powerful for us to know that, you know, um, that's a, that a great example of faith in somebody who was able to do really good things in the world um, was kind of living with um, that struggle. Yeah. 
and we had one about St. Clair of Assisi. Um, we had one about Sister Wendy. I was bummed it was a triple stumper. This art nun who became an unlikely BBC and PBS star with TV series like Her Story of Painting passed away in 2018 at the age of 88. And then we had a, a clue about Sister Helen Prejean at the $2,000 level asking about her books Dead Man Walking and River of Fire. Huh. Yeah, I did not know about them. Daily Double number two comes in at the... $2,000 level of It's Not You, It's Me. Patrick finds it and wagers 2500 of his 7600 At that point, Travis has 6800 and Teresa has 1800 He gets the clue, only 1.17% of this new African country's population voted to stay with the old country in 2011 and correctly responds, well, correctly enough, uh, he says, what is southern Sudan? I think South Sudan is more common as a name, yes. but, but they accept southern Sudan. Yeah, I wonder if that's a translation thing. Like, it could be both. Mm, yeah, I bet. Because otherwise, like, you know, if, if the official name is in English and the official name is South Sudan, then I would think that southern Sudan would be incorrect. But mm-hmm. who knows? Certainly I don't. And we find the third Daily Double in the foreign language mottos category uh at the sixteen hundred dollar level patrick finds this one as well and he wagers three thousand uh of his eleven thousand three hundred so he's just behind travis at this point um so he's looking to take the lead and the clue is the greeks use the motto eleftheria ethanatos which is freedom or this. And he correctly responds, what is death? Uh, I did not know Eleftheria meant freedom, but I did know that Thanatos meant death. Mm-hmm. So nice. he gets it correct. And that puts him into the lead. Which he is able to maintain for the rest of the round. So as we go into final Jeopardy, Patrick is leading with 20,700. Travis is in second place with 14,800. Teresa is at 4,600. Um, so depending on wagers, she might have a chance. She has a statistical chance. <laughs> yes. The category is ranks and titles. And the clue is Canada, Belgium, and the U.S. are among nations that bestow this artistic title that dates to the Greeks at a tree sacred to Apollo. Uh, Teresa has wagered 4,100 and correctly responds, what is poet laureate? Travis wagers 5,901 and responds, what is brigadier general? So that's incorrect. He drops down, um, but still lands a couple hundred dollars above Teresa. Mm-hmm. And Patrick has wagered 11,499 and correctly responds, what is Laureate? Oh, so he's trying to land above Teresa, if no matter what. doubles up, uh, yeah. If she doubles up. Yeah, so he's, he's figured out the cover bet. I think he thinks he's safe going a little higher than that because he assumes that... He made the choice. Like, we, we see what the logic there was, but it was a choice between that and just sticking to a cover bet. So, Patrick is our winner going into Friday. 
So we have Brenda Gant, an office manager and bookkeeper from Glendale, California. Gorby Shaw, a nuclear engineer and improv comedian from Cincinnati, Ohio. Patrick Rice, a business development strategist from San Francisco, California, whose one-day cash winnings total 32199 And we get the categories, O Canada Province, Songs for Every Member of the Family, Cars, Women's Memoirs, Where's the Beef, and Beyond Meat. Each correct response will be a word that comes somewhere after meat in the dictionary, but not too far after meat. Um, I thought that was maybe not quite specific enough. Like, like he hasn't said that they're going to start with M or with M-E. And so, like, what is not too far, really? You know, if you right. came up with something that started with N and fit the clue, like, yeah. I think that he, you haven't been given parameters that, that keep you within within M-E. Right. Although all the correct responses do begin with M-E. True. Sorry. Such as the $600 clue. When an egg became the most popular post on Instagram, it became popular as one of these. Perhaps you missed this one. Uh, and the correct response is, what is a meme? Yes. Did the Jeopardy folks make that meme of an egg at a Jeopardy podium? I presume they did. Maybe. Maybe it was already just out there. Yeah, who knows. Daily Double number one comes in the women's memoirs category. It's the 10th pick. Garvey finds it, and she wagers 1,000, which is not all she has. She's in the lead at this point. She has 3,600 over Patrick's 2,400, and Brenda is in the red, so she has some wiggle room, but she only wagers 1,000. And the clue is, I feel bad about my neck about the travails of aging is by this late great writer and director of You've Got Mail. And she says that she doesn't know. Alex reminds us that she's a very talented lady, and that is Nora Ephron. So she, uh, she loses a thousand at that. Yeah. At the $800 level in the same category, we had award-winning screenwriter Diablo Cody's record of her time as one of these performers is titled Candy Girl. That was a triple stumper. The correct response is a stripper. And I sort of wonder if they were all standing there being like, I'm not supposed to say stripper on Jeopardy, yeah. am I? It must, it must be something else. It can't be stripper. They wouldn't right. be asking me to stand here on TV. And, yeah. yeah. Am I supposed to say exotic dancer? Is that correct? What do I say? That, that very, very well may have been the clue or the case. Yeah. That was like one of my Jeopardy phobias. Right, um, yeah, we've talked about that being like, you can't <laughs> possibly be asking for that. <laughs> yeah. The $800 clue in Cars is headquartered in Munich. It built aircraft engines before transitioning into motorcycles and cars. Uh, that's BMW, and that's a that's a pretty common trivia question to know that BMW was an, uh, an aircraft manufacturer before that. One way that you can remember that, if you know their logo, you know, it's a circle... Oh, yeah. Cut into quadrants, black and blue. That's meant to represent an airplane propeller. Oh, okay. So you can keep that in mind if, if that is a, you know, if you need a visual mnemonic for that. Huh. They they did pretty well with the O Canada province um, category, which is good because it makes Alex upset. Yeah, when you don't know Canada, <laughs> don't he's know like, Can Canadian like geography. shame, shame, shame. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have uh, Gauravi leading with 7,000, Patrick in second place with 5,400. Brenda only has 400, but there's lots of time. We get the Double Jeopardy categories, Civil Rights and Wrongs, Music Halls, Fredericks of Hollywood, and they've put parentheses around the E and the K, I guess, to indicate that there are plenty of variations, but these are all going to be clues about some people named some variation of Frederick. Awards and honors, slang terms, and Egyptian mythology. And uh, they just blazed right through the Egyptian mythology category first yes, and found they. Daily Double number two there. Gorvi found it and wagered 2,000 of her 9,000. Um, Patrick has 5,400 at this point. Brenda has 800. She gets the clue. The Egyptian sun god known as Kepri at dawn and Atum in the evening was known by this two-letter name at midday. Thinking of, an, of a two-letter Egyptian god, you've got to think of Ra. Um, she mm-hmm. gets it correct. Yep. I love that category. I like mythology, but I've expounded on that before. Yes. I also so. liked the category, and um, I think I ran it. Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, the $2,000 clue had a, an image of a god, and with his distinctive head, he was the god of embalming. Um, that's Anubis. He has the head of a... What is a it? A jackal. There? Is it a jackal? Yeah. yeah. Yes. There's like a hand sign that we, that like kids were taught to do, like the quiet coyote. <laughs> <laughs> to indicate that everyone was supposed to be quiet, but I always just called it Anubis. Um, nice because that is the kind of child i was Um, yep (laughs) nice i missed a clue about new york city in the music halls category this new york city venue a shivering gold stage curtain that is said to be the largest in the world and i just sort of was looking at it and like trying to think what it was and i was thinking of the sort of more sort of high culture venues in the city, um, in fact, it was Radio City Music Hall, which I have enjoyed several times, the Christmas Spectacular. It's a whole thing. But for some reason, I was like stuck on like thinking about like Lincoln Center and those kinds of places. Yeah, the $2,000 clue in that category was a triple stumper. The clue is a Miami concert hall is home to this symphony, co-founded by Michael Tilson Thomas. Its name sounds like a Dvorak piece about America. If you don't know for sure, and you're, or you're not willing to take a guess on it, I guess you'd stay out of it, but the Dvorak piece about America is the New World Symphony. If it's a group, you can call it the New World Symphony Orchestra, right. which is the correct response. Mm-hmm. I got that one because I knew the Dvorak Symphony. Yeah. Uh, we get Daily Double number three in the Civil Rights and Wrongs category at the $2,000 level. Brenda finds it, and she wagers 3200 which is a, a significant bet. She has 8,800 at this point, but Gorvi is up at 14,200 at this point. So I kind of think she should have made a bigger bet to try and, mm-hmm. you know, put her put her back in contention. But, right. you know, that's how it goes. Uh, the clue is, this discriminatory practice comes from the colorful borders on maps around areas where minorities found it hard to get loans of credit. And she correctly identifies what is redlining. Mm-hmm. That's a Jeopardy So Woke clue. The legacy well, of redlining is still very much with us um, oh yeah and has impacted demographics of 
cities and towns and neighborhoods. Um, well, yeah, and I mean, generational poverty is right is an incredibly powerful effect, mm-hmm. particularly on on minority communities. Mm-hmm. But that whole category was kind of Jeopardy so woke, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, we had um, one about a clue about voter registration drives. We had the origin of the term Jim Crow in 1828 after Thomas Rice began playing a blackface character named This, a term later used to describe racist laws. Um, that's Jim Crow. Patrick guessed Uncle Tom, which is not a bad guess, although a different stereotype and, and uncle tom uh, uncle tom's cabin was published later on um closer to the civil war i think yeah it was the 1850s yeah. yeah oh gosh i don't remember who it was who's quoted but somebody somebody like famous is quoted as like directly blaming harriet beecher stowe for the civil war <laughs> i think abraham lincoln sort of attributed like like he doesn't the quote that i've seen it might have been lincoln yeah yeah like the little lady who started this war yeah <laughs> So we get to the end of the Double Jeopardy round, and a much higher scoring game than we've seen throughout this week. Patrick is in third place with 11,000. Guarvi's in first place at 15,400, and Brenda is in between at 12,800. So anyone's game, lots of money to deal with. The category for Final Jeopardy is quotes about 19th century authors. And the clue says, this author, quote, showed that abysses may exist inside a governess, end quote, a heroine who was a, quote, commonplace spinster. So we're looking for an author who wrote about a governess who was a commonplace spinster. Patrick wagered 51.99, uh, and he guessed who is Emily Dickinson, which is incorrect. Brenda wagered 10,001, I'm not sure about that number. It yeah. it it basically covers Patrick's all in, not exactly, but I guess that might have been it. Her response is, "Who is Emily Bronte?" And that is also incorrect. Gorvi wagers ten thousand two hundred and one, which is a cover bet over Brenda, and she correctly identifies who is Charlotte Bronte, and that's about Jane Eyre. Yes. I was wondering whether who is Bronte would have been sufficient. Probably not in this case. And I am like 95% certain that they were told before, like when they were putting in their wagers, that they were told that they need to be specific. Because you're mm-hmm. told in the in the break when you're um, putting in your wagers, the contestant coordinators tell the tell the contestants, okay, now on your screen, write the word who or write the word what so they tell you whether the answer is going to be a who or a what because they don't want you to have to they don't want the contestants to get tripped up by forgetting to write the response in the form of a question Mm -hmm. Uh, so they have you write the interrogative first before the clue is revealed so you can just write your answer yeah um and get that right and i remember in one of my games it was my friday game against uh andrew and riley the final jeopardy we were told you need to be more specific with this response a less specific answer will not be accepted and that's all they said but the correct response was figure skating and that clued clued me in afterward to say that if i had just put skating 
that would not have been accepted. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if the the contestant coordinators must not know what the clue is at that point. I bet that they're past just information about like just what to prompt you with right because they're really not allowed to know the material no no they can't be told the question yeah but they can be told we are going to need a specific response yeah Um, so i don't know they i mean yeah they are told okay tell them to write who and then they are probably told tell them that they need to be very specific yeah all right so that that's helpful i um the one game that i played we did not need to receive any guidance like that so i didn't know that that was part of the process but that that does clarify why everybody gave first and last name in this case where i was thinking to myself i'm pretty sure that it's charlotte bronte but i might just put bronte yeah because i was more i thought it was i thought i was you know like 60 percent sure i had the right bronte i have a little bit of a hard time keeping the brontes straight yeah you know but thought that uh without that guidance I, i thought well you know usually they do take just the last name maybe it's safer to just put bronte i can't remember do they have us write that is no or is because it th- because it could, could be who are yeah it could be plural or uh singular ultimately i i think the grammar of the question doesn't matter right i mean they did i think i remember they said like as long as you have the who or what they're like you can put you know who lincoln and right. you'll get made fun of on the internet but it's it'll be considered a correct response Right. Yeah. Yeah. They did say that. I remember that. Yeah. So that means Garvey is the only one to get it correct, and she bumps herself up to 25,601. So she will be coming back next week. And I just got to say, the combination of her uh, description in the introduction, a nuclear engineer and improv comedian. Right. (laughs) I I am confident that that has never been said on Jeopardy. Yeah. I enjoyed that. And I feel like that she is bringing a pretty powerful combination of like, like you hear there, like there's a breadth of knowledge, right? You would expect a nuclear engineer to be like solid in sciencey things and an improv comedian to know their pop culture stuff. Right. Um, and she's also bringing a certain, you know, sort of stage presence. So I wonder if we'll see her sticking around for a while. Yeah. She's fun to watch. That's for sure. Yeah. So that's the end of the week. So do you have deep dive guesses? Uh, I do have deep dive guesses, and I will get to that. But first, I want to plug our Patreon for our listeners uh, in case you get to the end of the episode and you get to the end of the quiz and you're like, cool, I don't need to listen to the outro. Perhaps you haven't heard. (laughs) But we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. We have a few different subscription levels. If you are willing and able to throw us a few bucks a month to help offset some of the production costs and and costs for equipment and things like that. That would be really great. Obviously, you know, if you can't, that's totally fine. But if you are able to, any level gets you access to our uh, exclusive content, like our uh, GOAT tournament analysis, and also some deeper information like things that we find in our deep dive that we don't include or uh, quiz questions that we decide not to put in the show. Uh, All of that will be behind that paywall on Patreon. Mm -hmm. So check it out. Yeah. Anyway, so my deep dive guess, I didn't have any that like jumped out to me per se, except for this might not be, you know, applicable because it was a it was on the Friday. It's not any of the civil rights and wrongs, is it? It's not, although those were tempting. Um, but I, I had already committed by by Friday. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't... Maybe someday I'll pull a deep dive together at the really the absolute drop-dead last second and surprise everybody with a Friday clue. Uh, That's hard to do, though. Yeah. Yeah, I know I know you're a fan of the theater. I am. But I assume it's not one of the show-tune categories or it, clues. It was not a show-tune category, no. Okay. Uh, my last one would be Myalgia. Ooh, um... That would be interesting, um, but no. And I'm a little worried that this is a deep dive topic that maybe you will have picked up either by interest or by osmosis more than I had. Hmm. We're going back to, I I, I forced myself to do um, a missed clue Okay. this time. I tend to try to go for triple stumpers or missed daily doubles, hmm. but I keep bending that because something else is more tempting. Right. So we're going back to Tuesday, the monumental television category at the 600 level. This Kansas City, city in quotation marks, that attracts Western loving tourists has a life-size statue of Marshall Dillon from Gunsmoke. Hmm. And that the correct response to that one was, what is Dodge City? Yes. And it occurred to me that I knew it was kind of a Western town and i knew the expression get out of dodge or get the hell out of dodge Uh and that was all i knew about it Mm. i'm curious whether having grown up in the mountain west you're more familiar with old west stuff than i than i am uh i mean i i probably am in in the general sense i don't know a lot about dodge city uh i there are things that i think i know but i also might be mixing it up with other places Mm, yeah you know a lot of the folklore kind of blends into uh any kind of old west setting so i'm not gonna not gonna throw anything out there as to what i think i know i'll just i'll sit back and wait all right so uh we're going to focus more on post-civil war era dodge city like when it was developed as a united states town um and its legacy in american popular culture um but we can't really tell the story obviously without acknowledging um our history with american indian populations and indigenous tribes um i've heard different opinions about uh and and of course i have um about uh what language is preferable it feels like that's sort of in flux at at this point so i i'm shifting around how i am referring to um those societies throughout this sure but the region which would become the state of kansas was acquired by the united states as part of the louisiana purchase in 1803 in the 1820s it was designated as indian territory and numerous tribes were relocated to that area although there were also other tribes that were already there and that area was supposed to be closed to white settlers By 1850, white settlers were illegally squatting on the land and clamoring for it to be officially open to settlement. Hmm. So there were these trails that went through the area and U.S. Army forts were established to sort of provide security for and support for those trails. Um, So in the area where Dodge City would eventually be built, Fort Mann was built in 1847. It was built by civilians to protect the Santa Fe Trail, attacked by Indians. I don't know what tribe. I'm not sure if there's a record specifically and collapsed Mm. in 1848. And then in 1850, the army constructs Fort Atkinson on that same site. 
1852, the process of creating Kansas Territory formally begins, and Kansas Territory is formally established in 1854. Okay. In 1865, with wars with Indian tribes escalating, the army constructs Fort Dodge quite close to what would eventually become Dodge City. Um, so that's 1865, Civil War is drawing to a close. Hmm. In 1871, five miles west of Fort Dodge, um, a rancher named Henry Sittler um, constructed a three-room sod house to oversee his ranch, um, and his home became a stopping point for hunters and traders, and that's the site where Dodge City would eventually be built five miles west of Fort Dodge. Hmm. So throughout this time, railroad lines are being built from the east coming west toward that area, and uh, this particular site is where the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad line is supposed to pass through. Um, and it's also close to the Santa Fe Trail and the Arkansas River. Some of my Kansas history websites that I looked at were very specific that although it's spelled like the state Arkansas, the river is pronounced Arkansas, Arkansas. which hopefully they were correct. <laughs> uh, so that, that sort of confluence of the trail, the river, and the railroad that's coming in make this a, a great spot economically, um, a lot of opportunity in that area. There's also the Kansas Pacific Line being built at the same time, but it's going to pass further north. So in 1872, Dodge City is founded in that site, uh, five miles west of Fort Dodge. A guy named George M. Hoover starts Dodge's first business, a saloon, serving buffalo hunters, soldiers from the fort, and travelers on the Santa Fe Trail. And a group of local leaders and um, businessmen and military men uh, formally establish the town or start paperwork to formally establish the town on August 15, 1872. And then two more businesses open, um, another bar and a gunsmith. So at this point, we've got like a, a town that exists only on paper. Hmm. Different from a paper town, which is a... Um, a map making thing. So we've got a, a town that exists and has like a house or maybe some more people had, had homes there by that point. Um, two bars and a gunsmith. Uh, so very old West. And initially they were going to call it Buffalo town. Um, but there was already another town by that name. So they decided to name it after the nearby fort and call it Dodge city. Hmm. In September of 1872, the railroad construction brings the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad to Dodge, and that site is connected by rail to the rest of the, you know, the rest of the country, um, which allows it to become a force in trading. Um, there are front streets, is what they call them. One was called Main Street, and the other was called Front Street, and then they named the, renamed them both Front Street. Mm. So streets on both sides of the tracks are there with bars and a barbershop and dance halls and general stores. So um, Dodge's image in American popular culture is as this sort of lawless, dangerous, gunslinging kind of town. Right. Um, and that image comes predominantly from this first year. 1872, the railroad arrives and this paperwork has been filed to officially like incorporate this town. But at this point... That paperwork hasn't gone through. It's a boom town with like no law enforcement, no local government. It's not under the jurisdiction of the nearby fort. And so it's 
pretty much like literally anarchy. Mm. Like no one really has any authority here. Sure. So there are numerous murders. There is one black entrepreneur is lynched. 18 documented deaths from gunshot wounds in this one year. They establish a Boot Hill Cemetery for the bodies of men who uh, died with their boots on is the expression. So, you know, guys who um, were were shot right. um, in this. <laughs> and there are also later, I believe it was later, um, Boot Hill Cemeteries that same, with the, that same name are established in um, a couple of, of other kind of notorious Old West towns, Tombstone, Arizona and Deadwood, South Dakota. There's some evidence that the term red light district originates in Dodge City. Hmm. There was a saloon named the Red Lighthouse Saloon. There also is a folk etymology, although it's known to be incorrect, which was that railroad workers would take a red lantern from the train with them and hang it outside the brothel so that they could be found if needed. That's incorrect. It's like, but it's like a, it's like a folk tale, like a folk etymology. Yeah. I just thought that came from Amsterdam, but... Yeah. But who knows? It's When I looked it up, it was like not totally clear where it started, but it's possible that Dodge City is, is, uh, is the source of that term. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so initially, the trade is primarily in um, buffalo meat and hides and bones. Um, the bones were used in the manufacture of china and fertilizer. Okay. Although later in Dodge City's lifespan, that'll shift. So there's this very real one-year era of kind of violence and lawlessness, and that's real, um, but it also gets hugely sensationalized by the news media of the time. There are these headlines about Dodge City in newspapers all over the country that would kind of mix, like, factual stuff with imagery that would come from, like, Western novels. There were these, like, popular yellowback novels, I think is the term, sort of the 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 thing that that came after the penny dreadfuls uh there's a piece in the published in the new york tribune sort of condemning dodge city it focused a lot on the lynching i mentioned Mm -hmm. which of course is atrocious but also dodge city did not by any means have a monopoly on racial violence at that time sure and uh the piece said um There were a dozen well-developed murderers walking unmolested about Dodge City doing as they please. Yeah. So there's this whole sort of myth of Dodge City that that develops around it. In 1873, the process of making Dodge City official moves forward. Its title is approved by the General Land Office in Washington, which enables the election of officials, including a sheriff. And in 1875, Dodge City is granted municipal status, which allows it to hire a city marshal and as many assistants as necessary. And basically, as soon as those processes uh, happen, the amount of violence in Dodge City, like, it doesn't drop to zero, but it's, you know, commensurate Mm -hmm. with other towns in the area in the time right but still it never manages to overcome its reputation in part because in 1876 a writer named harry gryden moves to dodge city and what he does is um write these kind of sensationalist articles he's a big contributor to a men's magazine called national police gazette which was also known as the barbershop bible (laughs) It's sort of the thing that you'll kind of pick up and page through at the barbershop. And so he would write these kind of wild stories about Dodge City that would be read all over the nation. In those 
early years, over one and a half million buffalo hides were shipped out of Dodge City. Whoa. So it's sort of a huge, pretty pretty huge trade center. Yeah. However, by 1876, buffalo are nearly extinct. My guess is probably you're familiar with this, which was the result of a strategy advanced by a number of people. William Tecumseh Sherman came up most in my research. An effort to wipe out buffalo populations in order to starve Indian tribes off of their land and force them into reservations. Hmm. But in the meantime, there are these other big shifts happening with the cattle business. So cattle driving becomes a huge economic activity with cowboys driving herds of Texas Longhorn cattle from Texas to railheads where they can be transported by rail to stockyards. In the early days, they would be transported to New Orleans. But by the time Dodge City exists, cattle are being transported to Chicago. So initially, cattle are going to Baxter Springs, Kansas, by way of a trail called the Shawnee Trail. Hmm. However, Texas Longhorn cattle carry a tick that was giving (sighs) Texas cattle fever to the livestock of Kansan farmers. Uh So the farmers persuade the Kansas state legislature to establish a quarantine line in central Kansas and Texas Longhorn cattle are not allowed past that quarantine line. Um, So at that point, the cattle driving routes shift and cattle are being driven to Abilene. Mm -hmm. But then the quarantine line is moved west again. And Dodge City is like in the very southwest corner of Kansas. And so that's the next destination where cattle are being driven. And it's known as Queen of the Cow Towns. Mm. Over the course of a 10-year period, over 5 million cattle were uh, driven to Dodge City, arriving via the Great Western Cattle Trail, and then shipped, transported from there to uh, onto Chicago and elsewhere. So in 1876, uh, we get a famous figure. Wyatt Earp is hired as the chief deputy marshal of Dodge City. Mm -hmm. Um, He's assisting Marshal Lawrence Deeger. He leaves briefly for Deadwood, um, then he comes back in 1877, then he has another period of traveling trying to track down an outlaw, he's back again. During those travels, he meets another famous guy, Doc Holliday, sort of a gambler, gunfighter, old west guy. During one of those periods when he's back in Dodge City, there's this confrontation in the Long Branch Saloon. A group of two dozen cowboys led by a guy named Ed Morrison gallop through Front Street. They're shooting up the town. They go into the Long Branch Saloon and they're vandalizing the saloon and harassing the people there. And Wyatt Earp bursts through the doors and all guns point toward him. But then in the back of the saloon, Doc Holliday is uh, playing cards and puts a pistol to Ed Morrison's head. And then everybody has to put down their guns. Um, And from that point forward, there's this close friendship between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. Eventually, uh, like a year later or so, um, Earp moves on. um, But he continues to be kind of associated with Dodge City and to return for for various things. Uh, Most notably, an incident called the Dodge City War, uh, which was a bloodless conflict in 1883. The Long Branch Saloon has come up a couple of times already, um, and for good reason. It was, a, it was, I think, the major saloon in town, co-owned by, uh, initially by William Harris and Chuck Beeson. 
This guy, Luke Short, comes to town in 1881. He's hired there as a pharaoh dealer. That was a like a popular card game. Mm-hmm. And then in 1883, Beeson sells his interest in the saloon to Short. So uh, William Harris and Luke Short are the co-owners of this saloon. William Harris is nominated to run for mayor, but a law and order group nominates Lawrence Deeger, the marshal, to run against him. Hmm. And Deeger defeats Harris by a vote of 214 to 143. Wow, big, big turnout there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the numbers were sort of were sort of surprising to me, although um, I think it was this major trade center. So I think they had like a lot of people passing through and not actually too terribly many residents. Um, yeah, probably. Especially given, given who could vote at that time. Maybe it's not too surprising. Uh, so Deeger becomes the mayor, and along with city council, he passes several ordinances aimed at combating vice, immorality, and vagrancy in Dodge City. Several prostitutes employed at the Long Branch Saloon are arrested, and Luke Short exchanges gunfire with a policeman by the name of Lewis Hartman, um, although nobody is hurt. Remember, this is a bloodless war. Mm-hmm. And uh, Luke Short is arrested, of course. There's kind of some some back and forth where he's like released on bail and then arrested again but at the end of the story a couple days later he's taken to the train station and he's told he can he can go east or west but he can't stay in dodge so he goes east to kansas city missouri side note there's a kansas city missouri there's a kansas city kansas Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so just he, in case that was a question <laughs> he goes east to kansas city missouri where he um looks up the former sheriff of dodge city charles bassett and together they start laying the groundwork for short to return to dodge finding supporters reaching out to you know to to other sort of allies he has from dodge city and some weeks later luke short returns to dodge Along with uh, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Charlie Bassett, and and some others. Hmm. Bat Masterson is a is a name that comes up along with Wyatt Earp a lot. Yeah. Lawrence Deeger, now the mayor, issues a proclamation ordering the closing of all gambling establishments. Trying, he's sort of escalating this conflict, um, but it turns out that he's overstepped. Uh, this is the height of the cattle season. And there are all of these cowboys coming through. And so his decision is phenomenally unpopular because there's all these guys who are in town to, you know, in town and looking to gamble. Um, So he gets pressure from the governor of Kansas, Governor Glick, um, along with the Santa Fe Railroad to back down and allow the reopening of gambling establishments. So all are reopened, including the Long Branch Saloon. And a few days later, all of the parties of this conflict meet in a dance hall uh, to uh, to like talk it out and settle their differences <laughs> amicably, which they managed to do. Wow. Uh, <laughs> meet for it. <laughs> when I read it was in a dance hall, I was like, they meet for for a dance battle or <laughs> anyway, they they settle their different differences amicably. And then the next day. They sit down and have this portrait taken. Um, it is famously known as the Dodge City Peace Commission. And you've probably seen this picture. Um, it's this iconic image of the Old West with these two kind of rows of guys in like in the hats. Mm-hmm. You would recognize the image. I'll sure. Definitely put it up in the in the links on the Patreon page. That's that's a lot of the story of Dodge City, though. 
Um, because in 1886, yeah. the quarantine line is moved again, pushing cattle trade all the way out of Kansas. And Dodge oh. City fades from being a boom town to kind of a sleepy Western town. Sure. However, it would continue to be a literary setting for all kinds of Western debauchery and lawlessness. If you're writing a story about the Old West and you want it to be, you know, lots of gunslinging, Dodge City is one of the places where writers would set those kinds of mm-hmm. stories. Um, it has that association with Wyatt Earp, which continues to fuel its fame, especially as books and stories about Wyatt Earp come out. And then to sort of seal its reputation, Dodge City becomes the setting of Gunsmoke, which was both a radio oh, yeah. drama and more famously a TV show. Um, the radio drama ran 1952 to 1961, but the TV show ran from 1955 to 1975. Ooh. With, Yeah. Uh, It was the longest running primetime live action series of the 20th century. And the main character, Matt Dillon, is just a fictionalization of Wyatt Earp. Hmm. Yeah. So Dodge City now has, um, you know, sort of a tourism business with with its front street there and some of its historic buildings preserved, um, a Boot Hill Museum and the Boot Hill Cemetery, Statues of Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, and as the as the Jeopardy clue told us, um, also Matt Dillon. So we've got Wyatt mm-hmm. Earp and and Matt Dillon, the the character based on him. And so now you know the story of the town that inspired the idiom "Let's get the hell out of Dodge." Yeah, awesome. Yeah. That is really interesting. Um, so inspired by Dodge City's nickname as Queen of the Cow Towns. Mm-hmm. This is a quiz about cattle. Okay. And I and I sort of wonder cuz I cuz I know Colorado has am I remembering right more cattle. Yeah, um, no. Than then like New York probably. Than New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we I mean, ha- half of Colorado is plains, like the eastern yeah. half of the mountains is mm-hmm. it's all plains. So, yes, we yeah. we have farms, we have cattle, not not as much as some others, but yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. All right. So question one, I'm hoping we're starting with a softball here. Um, So technically, the word cow refers only to a female bovine who has produced at least one calf. What other term refers to a female bovine who has not yet had a calf? Oof. I I know different names, but I don't know the definitions. But my guess is a heifer. Ooh, you're correct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's um, uh, there's other terms for for male cattle, um, and then a heifer is a female who hasn't yet had a calf. Um, if the heifer is pregnant, then she is a bred heifer. Interesting. Um, but still a heifer until her calf is born. All right, so 10 points. All hmm. right, uh, okay. question two. A cow plays a central role in a Broadway musical turned film. In the film, the director opted to use a live cow rather than using CGI, giving James Corden and the rest of the ensemble cast quite a tale to tell. Name the work. Uh, James Corden in a musical-turned-movie with a real cow instead of a... With a cow. Wow, this... With a cow. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I have no freaking clue. So, the only movie... Only, like musical movie that i know of that has james corden that would use cgi meaning like recently is cats so i'm gonna go with cats 
I'm sorry, it's not cats. I knew. I was, yeah, I didn't I was think so. Made in there by mentioning by mentioning James Corden. Um, it's Into the Woods. Yeah, it's Into the Woods. Oh. So James Corden played um, the baker. Hmm. Okay. So he spent a lot of time with the cow, and he says it was it was the biggest diva of the production, <laughs> and uh, would sometimes interrupt Meryl Streep's performance by mooing unexpectedly. <laughs> nice. All right, question three. Um, practices in cattle slaughtering have become more humane, uh, thanks in part to the work of what professor of animal science who is also known for her advocacy and writing, sharing her experience as a person with autism? Oh, I did not know this, but my guess is Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin is correct. Yes, she's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is a very awesome person. Yeah. But she's she's done some really interesting work um, and a lot of advocacy to make to make slaughter as humane as possible. Yeah. Um, all right, you're at 20 points and we're going into question four. The breed of cattle that Dodge that came through Dodge City was the Texas Longhorn. And uh, we recently had a Jeopardy clue about another breed, uh, the Black Angus. But there are two other breeds, beloved as dairy cows, that are named for the Channel Islands from which they come. For five points each, name both. Oh, jeez. Channel Islands. Uh... All right. I know there's a type of cow called Holstein. Um... When you say it, I'm going to smack my head because I, I know that I've, yeah. I know that I know it. I'm not going to pull it. I'm just going to go with Holstein and blank. All right. All right. Uh, so, so you're zero on this one. The gotcha. correct answers are Jersey and Jersey. Guernsey. Jersey and Guernsey. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There was also a third Channel Island cattle breed, Alderney, um, but that one's now extinct. That makes me kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. I think there are, like, the purebred is, is extinct. I think there are other, like, there are cows around that, like, have an Alderney, like, ancestor. But, okay. Uh, yeah. But the breed does not exist anymore. Jersey right. and Guernsey, of course it is. Ugh. Um, so this actually relates to, um, oh, no, I, sh- I shouldn't say that because um, it gives you a, a hint. Oh, well, I guess you've had the hint. It relates to something we talked about earlier. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very far from Dodge City, this bovine of a classic children's picture book was reluctant to participate in the same activity as his peers. Instead, he loved to sit and sniff the flowers. Oh. Oh, that I think that's that's Ferdinand the, the bull, right? That is Ferdinand the bull. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean we talked about this earlier? <laughs> we didn't talk about this earlier? Yeah. We talked about was, bullfighting. Uh, okay. Yeah, we talked about bullfighting. All right. So you're at 30 points. How many would you like to wager? Oh, I'll give you a category. The category, remember the quiz, is cattle. And we're staying in cattle, but the subcategory is U.S. presidents. I mean, I I kind of know some presidents. You do so, know some presidents. Um, I'm... I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to bet it all. You're wagering all 30 points. Here we go. The last cow to have the White House lawn as her grazing pasture was a Miss Pauline Wayne, given by Wisconsin Senator Isaac Stevenson to the president, his wife, Helen, and their children, Robert, 
Helen, and Charles. Shortly after her arrival, she gave birth to a male calf named Big Bill in honor of the president. While the president went on after his term ended to be a law professor, mm-hmm. Pauline Wayne returned to her original farm in Wisconsin, named the president. Well, if the president's named William or Bill, and he's big, and I'm, I mean, the name that's sticking in my head for the first lady of Helen is Taft. So I'm going to go with William Howard Taft. William Howard Taft is correct. Yes. Yeah, there had been other cows to graze on the White House lawn, but none subsequent to her. Yeah. Nice work. Thank you. All right, so you're good so quiz. you're finishing with 60 points. Awesome. Nice. I enjoyed that. That was um, a good quiz. I'm glad. Yes, I was I was a little worried. I was like, how do Coloradans know more about cattle than me? I mean, it's hit or miss. I mean, we got yeah. we got cowboys, we got rodeos, but we also have plenty of city folk. So, yeah. Shortly after I got the Jeopardy call, I went to a work function, well, like a for my husband's workplace, and uh, was chatting with somebody who originally is from Jersey. And my husband mentioned that I was about to be on Jeopardy. And he said, oh, you know, do you know anything about where I'm from? And I said, it's a Channel Island and it has cows. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that was satisfactory, I think. I think I, I impressed that, him by, yeah, by he, knowing that. He's like, yes, that is accurate. That is what we are. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, I'd like to thank our listeners for spending your time with us. It is so fun talking about Jeopardy. So thanks. Thanks for being here with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And it would be great if you could leave us a review or some stars as well. Like we mentioned earlier, be sure to check out our Patreon. We've got different subscription levels for uh, whatever you're willing and able to throw our way. And even if that's outside of your uh, comfort zone, you can still help us out by telling your Jeopardy-loving friends to check us out. They can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables or Twitter at Potent Potables 1. You can email us at potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. So we'll be coming back to you next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.